Let's hear God's word from the book of Numbers, chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it and consecrated it, and all its furnishings, and the altar, and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle." And then we'll jump ahead in this chapter to verse 84 and resume our reading there. This was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver platters, twelve silver bowls, and twelve gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels and each bowl 70 shekels. All the silver of the vessels weighed 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 gold pans full of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering were 12 young bulls, the rams 12, the male lambs in their first year 12, with their grain offering, and the kids of the goats as a sin offering 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls, the rams 60, the male goats 60, and the lambs in their first year 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Numbers chapter 7. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we pray that today also we would hear the voice of one, the voice of our God speaking to us. What a privilege, what a treasure, what a joy it is to have the word of God. May we hear it today in all its authority. May we hear it in its depth. May we hear it in its life-giving power. May we hear it as it inducts us into communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You probably noticed in that reading from Numbers chapter 7 that we skipped a hefty portion of the chapter. Numbers chapter 7 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and I think it's fair to say that it is the most repetitive because the bulk of the chapter, the part that we largely skipped over, details how on the first day the prince of Judah brought his offering, and it tells you all the details of what he brought as an offering of dedication for the altar. And then on the second day, it tells you what the prince from that tribe brought and goes through the exact same list because all 12 brought an identical offering. The only thing that changes in that list is the name of the person, what tribe he's from, and what day the offering was presented on. So if we read through it, you would read similar words over and over and over again, just so you have a sample. On the fifth day, verse 36, Shalumiel, the son of Zerashaddai, leader of the children of Simeon, 
presented an offering. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and as the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Shalumiel, the son of Zurashaddai. So that was one instance. Now that times 12 is the bulk of Numbers chapter 7. When we think about that, of course, we think, well, you're going to do a summary at the end. We read that part, how many golden bowls full of incense were offered. There were 12 of them. We read the summary. What is the point of listing all of these individual offerings? We get bored reading through that. Well, I think there is a lesson in the repetition, something along these lines. God didn't get bored of those offerings being brought, and God didn't get bored of recording what each one brought. None of the tribes of Israel were slighted by being left out of the reckoning. None of the tribes were slighted by not being included in this opportunity to offer for the dedication of the offering when the tabernacle was first set up, when it first began to be used? And isn't that a wonderful lesson? The Lord is not unmindful to forget your labor of love. Sometimes we grow tired of serving God. Maybe we don't get tired of serving God as an idea, but we grow tired of the day-to-day reality. We grow tired of doing the same things over and over. We grow tired of bringing the same offerings again and again. Well, for your encouragement, if that's your circumstance, if that's your feeling today, God does not grow tired of writing down, so to speak, what you have done, what you have brought, how you have served. Our service is minor compared to what God has done for us. But part of God's ongoing labor is to see, to keep track, to make a record of the ways that you serve. And so when you come in your Bible reading to read Numbers chapter 7, don't skip over that portion as we did this morning. Let it sink in that God delights to record the service of his people. Now, all of that is just to explain what we left out. Now we come to the real introduction. The occasion, the historical circumstance that we're reading about here is when the tabernacle was first set up and when it first started to be used. And Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers all record something different that happened at the dedication of the tabernacle when God first came down. In Exodus, what happens is that the cloud of glory comes and enters into the tabernacle so that nobody else can even come in. God moves in. We've looked at that before in our series from the book of Exodus. In Leviticus, we are told that when they began to use the altar, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the sacrifices that were offered. In other words, they didn't have to set fire underneath the sacrifices on that occasion. God himself sent fire from heaven to consume those sacrifices. Now, those two responses contain a tremendous truth. Each one of them contains a tremendous truth. 
The response in Exodus shows they had built the tabernacle according to God's design. God was pleased with it. God moved in. God would now dwell with his people in a new era of nearness, in a new accessibility, with a new avenue of approach. They could count on God's glorious presence among them. The response of fire burning up the sacrifices in Leviticus gives us a similar but distinct message. That one showed us that God accepted the sacrifice, that God was pleased with what they had brought. On an even deeper level, it communicated that God was reconciled to them, that he had put away their sins, that he had received them into communion and fellowship with himself, that the way for communion with God was open because God accepted the sacrifice. God recognized that the sacrifice was adequate to take away their sins. Now, in terms of the actual animals, it was adequate in terms of that symbolic, that shadowy economy. Of course, in genuine, in ultimate terms, it was adequate because it was a pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate sacrifice, the one who is truly acceptable to God. But then in Numbers, there's a different response. Moses erects the tabernacle, obviously, with help. He anoints the altar. They have the sacrifices of dedication. And then what happens? Well, we read it in verse 89. From this point forward, Moses could go into the tent of meeting, what we call the tabernacle, and he could go in to commune with God. He could go in to ask God questions, and he would receive an answer. A voice would come. There was a voice that was localized above the mercy seat. There was a voice that was coming out from between the cherubim. And there was a voice that continued to speak to Moses, to give him revelation, to give him law and guidance and direction, to give him all the information that he needed. So what happened when the tabernacle was built, when the altar was anointed, when the whole building and all of its instruments and all of its service was inaugurated and began? Well, God dwelt. With his people in a new way, God accepted their sacrifices and God continued to speak. And it's that last one that we're particularly going to consider this morning, the voice of God coming from the tabernacle. Verse 89 is a little unusual in its phrasing, in its grammar, in the way it's expressed. Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, it doesn't say with God, but you know it's God because who else is in the tabernacle of meeting? That's the whole point of this building is it's a place where God meets with his people. That's why the whole tabernacle is a prefiguring of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Moses goes in there to speak with him. Previously, Moses had been going up to the top of Mount Sinai or he'd been going outside of the camp to speak with God. But now God has been brought in, so to speak. God has moved in to the middle of the camp. And God is speaking not just from inside the tabernacle, but from one specific place in the tabernacle. God is speaking from above the mercy seat. Now, you remember what that is, hopefully. 
you remember there was the Ark of the Testimony, which was a wooden box overlaid with gold, and inside were the Ten Commandments. And the lid of that box was made out of gold, and it was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Now, that was where, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was supposed to sprinkle blood to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And so this was a very significant item of furniture for the Israelites. In one sense, you could think of the Ark of the Testimony with its seat, with the cherubim who were on either, either side of it. This was God's portable throne, or it might even be more accurate to say that this was God's portable footstool. God's throne was in heaven, but his footstool was on the earth. This is where you could find the presence of God at that time. Well, the foundation of God's throne was the law, was righteousness, was justice. The Ten Commandments were in the box. But for sinners, for those who approach God in our condition of defilement, the Ten Commandments, they're good news that God is righteous and holy, but they're bad news because we've broken them. But that law that could accuse, that absolutely could condemn, that law is not visible. It's covered. It's inside the box and above it. There's a mercy seat. There's a place where through the shedding of blood, propitiation can be made. So the law does not speak to condemn us. What comes instead? Well, what comes instead is God's loving voice to guide and direct us in our pilgrimage, to clear up doubts and misconceptions for Moses, to help him understand what they all need to do next, to give him instruction for the people of Israel. You remember that when the people heard the voice of God on Mount Sinai, they said, let's not have that happen again or we're all going to die. Let God speak to Moses and he will communicate to us. God accepted that request. In mercy, God listened to them. And now where does God speak? God speaks from the mercy seat. In other words, God speaks as a reconciled God. God speaks as a God who does not have a list of charges and accusations against us. But God speaks as one who has put away our sin, who has forgiven our iniquity, and who now directs his word to us, not to condemn, not to castigate, to correct, yes, to improve, absolutely, but also to communicate those promises of grace and mercy, to convey reassurance, to say, fear not to the soul that trembles under the weight of its own guilt, to bring the confidence of love and acceptance to the soul that feels too defiled to come into the presence of God. God speaks from the mercy seat. You know, that has an application to how we read Scripture, how we read the law, how we read the Proverbs, but really how we read the whole of Scripture. When we compare ourselves to what is found in Scripture, of course, we always find that we fall short. We maybe don't fall short of some of the bad examples, but we do fall short of the precepts. And it's good to be aware of that. It's good to be reminded of that. We don't want to lose sight of that. We don't want to become people who pat ourselves on the back for how great we are at obeying God, because that's not the reality. We're not great at it. We do obey God. We try to obey God, but we are not great at obeying God. It's good to know that. 
But you know, you can read the Bible, and if that's the only thing you get out of it, you can be very diligent, very conscientious in your Bible reading. And if that's all you hear, that doesn't actually strengthen you. That doesn't actually make things better. You need to remember as you approach the Bible, as you read it, that God speaks to you from the mercy seat. God speaks to you as one who is reconciled to you because of Christ. Are there things that need to be improved and corrected and amended? Yes. I'm not questioning that for a second. But is that all that God has to say? Certainly not. God has a great deal more than that to say. And even when correction or amendment is what you hear from God's word. You need to hear it, not in a voice of condemnation, not in a voice of anger, not in a shape up or ship out kind of a way, but as coming from a loving father who would take away from you the obstacles, the burdens, the things that weigh you down, that trip you up. That's how we need to hear the law and the Proverbs, and the precepts, wherever they may be found. Remember, God speaks from the mercy seat. Now, God also speaks from between the cherubim. From between the two cherubim, it emphasizes that God spoke with Moses. What's the meaning of that? Well, this is a rich area. Psalm 80 and Psalm 99 both begin by acknowledging God as the one who dwells between the cherubim. That's also found when the temple is built. The idea is, well, if this is God's throne or God's footstool, however you want to look at it, where is God? Well, he's between the cherubim. Now, in that sense, the Ark of the Testimony with its lid, with its cherubim, was not terribly dissimilar from some of the plinths or bases that pagan nations might have had for their gods. So you would build a sort of a throne, but then in the middle, you would put an idol. You'd put a little statue of some kind or another, a worship dummy, as one of my seminary buddies memorably called idols. With this one that God authorized, what was in between the cherubim? Well, there was nothing visible unless it was the glory cloud, which nobody was looking at. In other words, God cannot be represented by human means. That was one of the lessons of an empty throne. No, it wasn't empty. God was there, but God was invisible. That's one lesson. God cannot be drawn. God cannot be imaged. God cannot be depicted by human means. But of course, it also emphasized his glory. Here is the one who's exalted above all. The heavenly beings, the cherubim themselves, cover their faces, bow down their heads, and worship him, calling out, holy, holy, holy. This is the God of all majesty. This is the God of all glory. But you might remember the first time that a cherub is mentioned in the Bible It was after Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And God put a cherub there and a flaming sword to guard the way so that nobody could get into the Garden of Eden, so that nobody could approach the Tree of Life. The first time human beings encountered a cherub, he was blocking the way to God because human beings had sinned, could not enter God's presence. Now, 
Here are these golden cherubim. God is in between them. The way is no longer blocked. Access has been restored. Access has been restored by God's grace. It's not something people did. But you know, in the tabernacle, there was no flaming sword. Around the Garden of Eden, there was. But not in the tabernacle. Because God had instituted it. God had authorized it. God had come down to visit, to redeem, to rescue his people, to dwell with them, to share their lives. And I understand there were restrictions on access to the tabernacle, but there wasn't a flaming sword absolutely prohibiting access. A way was opened, and it was a wider way than before. Well, now in the New Testament, of course, Hebrews talks to us about a new and living way that has been opened. We can come to God through Christ at any time, under any circumstance, with any clothes, with whatever we're doing in the moment. We can turn to God. A new and living way has been opened. Now, God has not changed. He is still the God who dwells between the cherubim. He is still the God whose glory and majesty are absolutely overwhelming, who are beyond anything that we can describe. But this God of all majesty and all glory has drawn near in grace. He's the God of our mercy. And he invites us to come. He makes himself available to us. That too is something that we need to allow to sink in. That also is something that needs to be a deeper reality in our hearts. We have access to God. You're not cut off. You're not restricted. You're not held at arm's length. There's not some giant process you have to go through in order to approach God. You just have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You just have to pray in his name and you're there. You're heard. God has come among us. Now, in Numbers chapter 7, God especially spoke to Moses. Moses was the mediator of that covenant. Moses had unique access to God. That's spelled out in the book of Numbers. God says, I'll speak to other people through dreams or visions, but with Moses, I'll speak face to face. Moses had a unique access in that time. And so Moses was the one who would come in. Moses was the one who would hear God's voice. And Moses was the one to then write down what God said. For that time, Moses as a type of Christ, had unique access. And obviously we can say in our own times with Christ as our mediator that he has unique access. He's the only son who's in the bosom of the father. He knows God in a way that we do not. But Christ makes that very same God known to us. And so where do we hear the voice of God? We can't go to the tabernacle. It doesn't exist anymore. If the mercy seat survived somewhere, well, we don't know about it. And I don't think it did. So where can we hear God speak? How can we have this experience that Moses had? We hear God speak in Scripture. God has recorded his voice, if you want to look at it that way. 
And it comes to us afresh. The word of God is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You remember what Hebrews does with this. Drawing on Psalm 95, he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the temptation in the wilderness. Where were the first readers of Hebrews hearing God's voice? Well, they were hearing God's voice in the Lord Jesus Christ. But by the time Hebrews was written, Christ was ascended into heaven. Where were they hearing God's voice? They were hearing God's voice in the reading and in the preaching of Scripture. That's how God's voice came to them. That's how God's voice came to the original audience of Psalm 95. And that is how God's voice comes to us. When God has done these great things, when God has come down, when he has moved in with his people, when he has accepted their sacrifices, when he has revealed himself to be a God of mercy, that's not the end. That's the beginning of a life of communion with God. And what does communion with God involved? How do you, in your day-to-day concerns, as you go about your business, as you get your work done, how do you commune with God? What does that even mean to commune with God? It means that you hear his voice. Now, of course, it also means that you talk to him. But just talking to God without hearing his voice would seem like a very one-sided conversation, wouldn't it? You hear his voice in Scripture, in the reading and in the preaching of Scripture. That's where God's voice is to be found. And that's why the Christian life is not, well, I memorized the Romans road. I know how to get saved. Boom, I'm done. My Bible can gather dust from now till I die. That's no way to live. Do you think Moses went into the tabernacle once, twice? I bet Moses was in the tabernacle as much as he could be. He had responsibilities. He had things he had to do. But to hear God's voice speaking from above the mercy seat, to hear God's voice coming out from between the cherubim, I'm reasonably confident that Moses made good use of that privilege. Well, we also have that privilege. We can hear the loving tones of a reconciled God speaking to us in Scripture. Moses had to go into the tabernacle. We have to open a book. As we do, as we come, we hear God's voice. The sacraments are sometimes called visible words because through them also, God speaks to us. Through them also, we hear God's voice. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we'll come to observe in just a moment or two. There too, we also hear the voice of our God. We hear Christ's voice speaking about his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. We hear Christ's command to do this in remembrance of him. We hear all of the implications of that, about his true humanity, about how he genuinely is partaker of flesh and blood, about how he shares himself with us, how he gives his flesh for the life of the world. We hear God's voice when we come to God's word and when we come to the sacraments in faith. Amen.